hello listeners and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Andy Alexander and it is Monday morning so I'm bringing you yet another new episode this week. Today we have our former co-editor Dr. Brianne Fallon who you will certainly recognize talking with a new guest of the RSP Dr. Barbara Krafsevitz from Jagiellonian University in Krakow and they are discussing Barbara's new book History, Metahistory, and Evil, Jewish Theological Responses to the Holocaust, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2020. In discussing the various Jewish theological responses to the Holocaust, Fallon and Krafkowitz unpack issues of comparison, of history and narrative construction, and consider the role of the Holocaust in Jewish identity. But I will let them unpack these ideas and questions in much more depth in the interview. So take it away, Brie. Barbara Kratzovich is Assistant Professor at the Institute of Religious Studies. And where is that university, Barbara? It's a Jagiellonian University in Krakow. Wonderful. And your work centers on modern and contemporary Judaism and the question of how Jews have been transforming and reinventing their religious ideas and discourses in response to events seen as challenging to their current forms. In addition, Barbara is also interested in the history of categories commonly used in the academic study of Judaism. Her first book, which you've said was written in another lifetime, is William James, Pragmatism and Religion. And her second is History Metahistory. And it's very exciting to hear that an edited volume called Thinking with Jonathan Z. Smith is going to appear very soon. Welcome to the project, Barbara. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, we're here to talk about your recent monograph, History, Metahistory and Evil. And it considers Jewish theological responses to the Holocaust. And before we dive into, in particular, those three words, history, metahistory, and evil, and why you chose them and chose to use them, I'd love to just do a quick refresh on sort of the major streams of Judaism and which ones you focus on in the book. Sure. So, of course, the situation is different today than it was in the years before the World War II and even earlier, uh, and also in the immediate post-war period. Uh, but basically, you have these three streams or three denominations today, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. And of course, all three of them go back to late 18th, uh, early 19th century, and even earlier. And each of these always had various forms, and they were changing through, uh, through history. So it's a rather complicated issue, like kind of this mapping of uh, of those streams or uh, or denominations. But the the figures I the people I wrote about in the book belonged to various streams. If you if you want to kind of uh, or even it's even more than stream. It's a kind of you know life form, if you if you will. So the rabbis I wrote about who wrote about the Holocaust as it was unfolding. Uh, belong to orthodoxy and to ultra-orthodoxy, uh, both Hasidic and non-Hasidic. So I'm adding those words already, so it shows that, you know, it's a complex picture, really. And orthodoxy is a modern movement in itself. Um, it could not have been otherwise. And uh, it was a particular response to changes brought by, by modernity, by Jewish emancipation. And it was also a response to those Jews who believed that Judaism needed to change in order to become you know, a modern religion for modern Jews. And Orthodox's answer was, no, it absolutely doesn't need to change. Moreover, it actually cannot change, or even it has never changed. 
which in itself, ironically, was a very radical and actually new, uh, new claim. So this was orthodoxy. And as for the post-Holocaust theologians, uh, the Northern American uh, free figures that I chose, Emil Fackenheim was ordained as a reform rabbi. Richard Rubenstein was ordained as a conservative rabbi, because by then the conservative movement existed as such. But really his sympathies were more with the reconstructionist Judaism, which is kind of the, not anymore, it used to be the youngest branch uh, of, of, of Judaism, but it is no longer. And Eliezer Berkowitz was an Orthodox, uh, modern Orthodox uh, rabbi. As you say, it is quite complicated. So I'm glad that we just had a little bit of a refresher there. Going back to the book, History, Metahistory and Evil, it's quite the title. Tell me about it. Tell me about those terms and what we're particularly looking at. Yeah, I remember when I came uh, up with the title, I was terribly proud of myself, I must admit. So we are accustomed to thinking about the Holocaust as an event that because of its enormity, has shattered many of the central beliefs and, and categories of Judaism. Jewish life couldn't be the same after the Holocaust, right? And of course, Judaism couldn't be the same as well. And at least that seems to have been, and maybe still is, the kind of popular uh, dominant opinion about that. And I use the concept of metahistory to point out that such an interpretation of the Holocaust, as well as any other interpretation of the Holocaust, depends on a certain prior assumptions regarding history. So what, what is history, right? History is a story we tell about the past. The past is there. I mean, I know it's actually a very problematic statement, but we let's agree for a moment that the past somehow exists uh, there, distant past, immediate past. But the way we see it, the way we make sense of it, the way we tell the history of this past, depends on uh, more general assumptions about how history in general is supposed to work or how does it work. And of course, we are, I, I don't think we are usually aware of those assumptions. We, we simply, that's simply how we think without really often realizing that that's, uh, that's the way we think. But history is always constructed by human beings, right? It doesn't exist on its own or, or by itself. It's a story we stitch from facts, we select. And metahistory is the sort of thing, quote unquote, that tells us how to do it, how to stitch this, you know, carpet or, or whatever it is that we are uh, stitching. And in, in this particular case, metahistory is, is I, I try to trace it in the first chapter of the book when I talk about paradigmatic thinking and, and covenantal uh, theodicy. So basically I'm arguing that one can identify certain way of approaching historical events in Jewish tradition. It's not the only one, but it is, I argue, dominant. And we can see it right from the very beginnings, meaning from, uh, from, from the Hebrew Bible. And I think, and that's what I argue, that in order to understand why certain thinkers thought about the Holocaust in certain ways, we really need to flesh out and understand those assumptions that guided their, uh, their thinking. In terms of, you mentioned the Jewish faith has sort of multiple historical events, and you said obviously the Holocaust is probably the most defining. Could we talk about some of those other events? I imagine, for example, the destruction of the temple would be another event. Yes, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to put it this way, because you said that the Holocaust 
is one of the most defining. And this is exactly the question, is it? Because that says that the Holocaust is somehow unique, that somehow it is different in very important ways from all other events. And this is precisely what this Jewish metahistory, which I described, says. It says there can be no such event. So when you list the Holocaust and then you say the destruction of the temple and or we can say, you know, the expulsion from Spain or the massacres in in the Middle um, Ages and again and again, many similar catastrophes, you know, first temple, second temple. And this Jewish metahistory says it is all the same. It is all a part of one cloth, again, to go back to, you know, this, this teaching thing metaphor. So it is all... It is all the same in a very important way. This metahistory that I claim to be the dominant way of interpreting historical events excludes radical novelty. It excludes the very existence of an event that would shatter this, this cloth. So um, that's, that's kind of the, the really uh, question, probably the very like, fundamental part of this book, is Holocaust unique theologically? Mm. And what does it mean when we say that it is? What does it mean when we say that it isn't? And what makes it possible for us to say that it is or that it isn't? We could talk for hours because I just want to throw in this very different approach than what we've got pre-prepared. So if you feel like you don't want to talk about this, it's totally fine. But uh, there was a survey done in Australia called the Gen 17 survey that surveyed the Jewish community. And there was one question which was, how important or not important are the following things to the manifestation of your Jewish identity? And 98% of respondents put the number one thing that was important to their Jewish identity was remembering the Holocaust. And if we go down to something like believing in God, that's only 46% and prayer is down at 36. What do you make of that considering your research in the book? Yeah, it is. It is a very interesting development, but um, I don't think uh, Australian Jewish community is unique in this respect. But I mean, you cannot deny really that the Holocaust has become, as for many people, central element of what being Jewish is about. I mean, not so much the Holocaust, it's but remembering remembering this particular event. And it, I, I don't know if it is caused by or is it a reflection of all those years since the, the end of the war and really, um, you know, it is commonly kind of thought that really post-Holocaust theology and the general kind of discourse about the Holocaust started in the 1960s. We, today we know that it was not exactly true, it was, it was earlier. But very early on, it had this, I think, profound was accompanied by this profound sense of the uniqueness of this event. Mm. And I think uh, one of the figures that contributed the most to, to this was Elie Wiesel. Mm. Uh, you know, his, his writings and, and their popularity and uh, the compelling character of, of, of the night and, and other uh, stuff that he wrote, this really set the tone so, so we are really used to thinking about the Holocaust in, in those terms. And, and that's why it was so interesting for me when I first discovered those ultra-Orthodox author-authors you know, who wrote during the war or after the war, coming from completely different perspective. Because I was familiar with those big names of post-Holocaust theology already when I discovered these guys. And I was like, wow, I mean, this is a completely different world. 
in many ways. I mean, there are similarities and, and those similarities are important and they are very important differences. But like I was struck by, by this basic difference in outlook. Like when uh, Richard Rubenstein in 1967 says that, and I will try more or less to quote, he says that for him to think that there is, that the Holocaust was a meaningful expression of God's will is too obscene to accept. And then I take Shlomo Zalman Unsdorfer, who is writing uh, in, in Bratislava, and he is writing, you know, from the, the ghetto conditions. And, you know, the situation is really bad. Some people were just burned alive, actually, in the, in the house for the elderly. And, and he's addressing his community. And, uh, and he says, yeah, this is God's will. He says, you know, I may not, we may not be able to understand. There are those moments in, in those sermons of, of you know, of, of Unsdorf and of Ehrenreich, less in Teichtal, because Teichtal's work is not a, these are not sermons, so it's, it's a kind of, it's a treatise, really. But with Ehrenreich and Unsdorfer and, and similarly, uh, Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro in the Warsaw Ghetto, you have those moments when they are like, we just don't understand why it is happening. We are trying various patterns from tradition. So we are talking, you know, about sin and we are talking about punishment and we are talking about redemption and we are talking about all those traditional, we are using all this traditional language, but there is a moment when we kind of hit the wall and just cannot say anything anymore. But even this silence is actually, can be made part of, again, this, this cloth of theodic discourse, because, of course, Jewish tradition also has very uh, prominent, not as prominent as theodicy, I think, is, but also very prominent tradition of, you know, arguing with God, of mm. protesting against God's decrees. There's this scene in the Bible that some of those authors uh, recall when Aaron uh, Moses' brother, right? They are, his sons are approaching the altar and all of a sudden, bang, they are struck by the lightning and they die. Nobody really knows why. Of course, many, many rabbis later were coming up with all kinds of explanations, but basically the Bible says it, and Aaron was silent because he didn't know, you know, what, 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 what I mean, why goodness, why, why, why has this just happened? So there are those moments in those traditional or, or orthodox responses, but they never you know, cross the boundary. They never say there is no God active here. They say we may not understand how exactly and why God is operating in this way, but they never say he is not operating here. It's interesting that you've focused on these responses during the war itself, because whenever I've considered Holocaust theology, it has been post-war, you know, Rubenstein probably being the work I'm most familiar with. During the war, you've just mentioned that there is some discussion that this is God's will we can't understand. Are there other different responses during wartime? Yes. Uh, and it also kind of depends on geography, uh, because of mm. course we have, we have relatively little writings uh, from the occupied territories because simply very little of it survived. We don't even know. I mean, there might have been many more materials, but we simply uh, never discovered them. Simply, usually in, in most cases, most probably they were destroyed. Uh, so we, we don't have a lot of material, but 
I found this material particularly interesting because of the proximity of the experience. Because, of course, the, the post-Holocaust theologians, they had very different approach and different perspective uh, from the wartime offers for, for great many reasons. But one of that was, I think, the temporal and, and geographic uh, distance. So, yes, there were rabbis who, who wrote in the then Palestine. There were rabbis who wrote in the UK. We do have those writings uh, of wartime authors. Uh, we do have some reform writings coming from Germany. And so, yes, so there, there, are, there are differences. But for some reason, I, I might have been wrong about that. But really, there was something particularly compelling about those wartime materials. And I think it's really important in comes to the fore when I write about Kalonimus Kalman Shapira. So Kalonimus Kalman Shapira was this Hasidic rabbi, you know, in the Warsaw Ghetto. So we are talking about someone who is very traditional, very deeply steeped in those this language, those metaphors, those, those categories. And we see him, at least that's my interpretation of, of his sermons, very early on, you know, even before the ghetto was created, already during this time of September 1949, when Warsaw was bombed. It was, you know, it was like London bleeds, if not worse. And already then, he is beginning to write that, you know what, this really is not what I would expect or what I would be able to describe in this traditional language. This cannot be a punishment. This mm -hmm. really is, this, this language just doesn't fit. And it was a very dramatic period for him personally because his son was killed uh, in, in, in one of those bombings. So he's saying like, you know, we cannot really say that this is a punishment for any sin because punishment, the point of punishment is so that we can repent and return to God. The problem is we are so broken that we cannot repent anymore. But he doesn't go, you know, to the point of questioning again this, but, you know, that God is not active. What he does say, at least I, I think he does say, in his very late, uh, like the latest additions to his sermons, he, he seems to be suggesting that actually the covenant is not working. But after, after the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, which was uh, absolutely catastrophic and cataclysmic event for somebody who lived through it, uh, you know, we are talking about thousands of hundreds of thousands of people deported, thousands killed on the streets. Uh, and he, Shabiro lived through this. And after those events, he wrote, okay, this is unprecedented. Never in our history, as far as I know, and he really did know, this whole, you know, rabbinic story about all those destructions of temples and everything else, he said, nothing like this has ever happened. Do you think that his belief that the covenant is not working, do you think that's driving his actions in the Warsaw Ghetto? Because we see him establish a secret synagogue. We see him really trying to arrange um, mikveh immersions. We see him trying to have kosher marriages. Do you think he's trying to infuse religion into that ghetto as part of this idea that the covenant isn't working? That's a, that's a great question. I don't know, honestly, uh, and I'm not sure we know enough about his activities in, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, we, we know some things, as you say, and, and we know some things about other rabbis in Warsaw Ghetto who were also extremely, uh, extremely active. 
trying to, you know, provide religious education as far as it was possible and all those things that were necessary for those people. Uh, but I do think that at some point, uh, at least you can see this in the sermons, uh, I think at some point he stopped believing that redemption is possible. That because this is, you know, another uh, like fundamental uh, belief that redemption is what's going to happen in the end, right? Whatever is going on right now, redemption will happen because it has to happen because it was promised, because this is how the fabric of creation works. And with him, there is this particularly uh, compelling and poignant sermon um, where, when he talks about Jewish future and he talks about Jewish youth. And he's saying, this is what's happening is horrible because what is being killed is not only our present, it is also our future. So for someone who was so involved, especially in Jewish education before the war, uh, so and, and also during the war, as far as we know, for someone who, who for whom the, the youth education, Hasidic education of, of young Jews was so tremendously important to say that, you know what, it's just not going to happen because there is no going to be any future. And that's I think that's the moment when, when it kind of breaks for him. I wonder if that's the reason he transfers his books and manuscripts to the Oneg Shabbat archive, because he figures that that's going to outlive, which is a devastating thing to think, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was, I mean, he, he was in contact with uh, people from the Oneg Shabbat group. And, uh, you know, after the liquidation of, uh, of the Warsaw Ghetto, yeah, I think, I mean, it is difficult to imagine that he didn't know. Uh, what was going to happen. I find it difficult to believe that he uh, believed he was going to survive. Um, and as I say, I think he, he was really broken at this point because it was nothing of this is gonna survive, you know, nothing of what my parents, of my father, I worked to build this present and this future and, and this is simply is going to disappear. Although, of course, he knew that there are Jewish communities that are still, you know, in existing. He, he's, uh, he had family um, that was in, in, in Palestine. So, but somehow, I mean, at least, you know, his world disappeared. It's interesting to see the connections between scholars, rabbis who are writing during the war and then after, because there is sort of an echo in Rubenstein in a way where he says, believe the quote is, God is dead, but the Jewish people must live, even though they're not the chosen people, which is an interesting connection to that idea you spoke of, of the, co the covenant isn't working. Yeah, I, I think that for, for, for Rubenstein was the one who articulated it most clearly and, and most radically. Uh, that, you know, after, after the Holocaust, after Auschwitz, like, as, as he titled his book, things simply cannot go as they used to. But, and, and here is the kind of the twist that I try to uh, make in my book, because I'm asking, was it really the Holocaust that actually destroyed or shattered those traditional concepts that, that kind of make, made uh, Rubenstein, but also Fackenheim a little differently and also Berkowitz to say that, you know what, we do need a new language or something. We need really something radically new in order to respond to this radical evil that happened. And that's the point I'm, I'm trying to make, that in order to think this way, 
they had to accept certain assumptions earlier or prior to this. They had to first accept that there can be a historic event that can shatter Judaism. And that really is a very radical statement. I mean, not to us, because we are used to it. We've heard it so many times, but of course, yeah, sure. But when you think of it, uh, about it from the perspective of this more kind of traditional approach, it is a huge thing to say, right? It's like, like Fackenheim says, but actually it is a sort of a new revelation. Like, wow, there can be no new revelations. So, so it really, those approaches were in, in this respect, kind of more, more radical, although as I, and the question is, was it really about the Holocaust? And I say, yes, I mean, of course, it would be ridiculous to say that, you know, that Holocaust was not important for, for Emil Fackenheim. I mean, of course, it was crucially important, but it was not the Holocaust itself that made Holocaust crucial for Fackenheim, if I may put it in this somewhat convoluted way. Because they first had to admit that, yes, Holocaust can change Jewish faith. And Fackenheim himself, for the kind of first period of his philosophical and theological activity, was very adamant, saying that, no, there is no historical event that can shatter fundamentals of, of Jewish religion. And then he was like, well, uh, actually, yes, it can happen. It's almost as though this is going to sound perhaps... Um, belittling of your incredibly detailed and complex argument, but it's almost as though Fackenheim had to think about this idea that faith is not lofty, it's not separate from the human world, and this very human evil event is the thing that brought it down. Yeah, I, he he was initially he was you know just this very well known um, or often quoted at least uh, statement from um, from his early writings that. God is a man existential a priori, meaning that you simply, uh, there is nothing that can make a believer think, stop believing, because existence and presence of God is a fundamental prior assumption. Very much like for Ehrenreich, Unsdorfer, Teichtal, and at least to a point Shapira. For them, presence of God in history was a dogma. It simply that's the way that's the way it is. And then for Fackenheim kind of realized that, but you know what? This is not the way we think anymore. He tried to think and he himself realized that this actually is not possible. And he did it, I as I argue, this change, this crucial change, really happened before Fackenheim truly started to address his new project of, you know, post-Holocaust Judaism. Because in order to say that there is a need for a post-Holocaust Judaism, he had to first recognize that, yes, the Holocaust is an event that shatters the previous framework of explanation. But then you have to admit that such events can exist in principle, which is really a fairly, uh, as I said, it's a fairly radical, uh, it's a fairly radical statement. Methodologically, how did you go about bringing this book together? I mean, we're talking about very real world events, which are also very difficult to to delve into, but also these these meta concepts of what is history, how do we interpret it, what assumptions do we make? How did you go about it? Have you received any particular um, critiques on the comparison element at all? 
Yes, I did. And actually, it was very early on when this project was still in very, very, very early and, and um, vague, uh, I would say, stage. And I had a senior scholar tell me during a workshop or something, but this comparison doesn't make any sense. And I was a very young person uh, or his younger person back then. And I wasn't quite as uh, maybe self-confident as I am now. And I was like, oh, okay. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, what am I, what am I supposed to do with this? But I, I no longer think so. I mean, um, as, I, as I read and uh, particular Jonathan uh, Z. Smith was uh, very important in, in this respect, that actually this comparison doesn't make sense, even though it may appear, I don't know, forced or something. And, and it, it kind of forced me to think quite a lot about comparison in, in general. And of course, there is a lot of discussion about comparison in, in religious studies in, uh, in recent big decades, actually, it's not, not so recent, where uh, it was shown that comparison is, is many ways is a very problematic project, let's say. So can one compare things that are so, uh, so different? And I was really struck by a comment of a different colleague of mine who happened to be a scholar of Buddhism because I reported, you know, the same comment to him, but it doesn't make sense. And he looked at me and was like, no, it makes perfect sense. They are similar and they are different. And that's why it makes sense. And, you know, it was kind of, it showed me how difference in perspective uh, decides here. It's not difference does not exist. Neither does similarity exist out there, right? If this is something that we bring that we create and comparison rests on this interplay of, of difference and, and similarity. But the question how much difference or how much similarity cannot really be uh, answered once and for all because neither of these two things exist over, out there. They are not objective qualities that can be you know, parsed independently of the perspective assumed by the person doing this comparison. So my colleague historian said it made no sense, but for my colleague scholar of Buddhism, it made perfect sense. So how do we decide if it makes sense or not? I think the real criteria is what do we learn from this comparison? Right? You can say that Umberto Eco was the one who wrote that he wanted to give an example of an absurd comparison. And he wrote that we could even compare the noun crocodile with the adverb while. And then over came another scholar and says, but it makes perfect sense in etymology or in grammar, right? So it's always about this context exactly, about what questions are we asking? What is this comparison telling us that is actually you know, new or, or interesting in some, some uh, this way or another. And here is, this is something I learned really from, uh, from Jay-Z Smith, that it is my agency, it is me as a scholar who builds this comparison, who decides why she's comparing these things in particular. And most importantly, who is able and has to be able to articulate, okay, this is what we gain. This is what we learned that we haven't learned before. And perhaps even this is what we could have learned only through this particular comparison. And this is what I'm arguing boldly and perhaps, but I am arguing that through comparing those, you know, Orthodox writers who wrote and thought about the Holocaust as it was happening and the post-Holocaust theologians, we learn something new about both, even something important.
not only new, but even possibly important. I'm going to put you on the spot because you said it was the scholar's job to articulate what we learn. So what do we learn about both by making the comparison? I think that we learn that this kind of kind of sounds simple, but that what we say, the way we talk about our history depends on how we understand history, whether it is articulated or not, whether it is understood or not, because, you know, of course, none of those orthodox authors uh, talked about metahistory or, you know, covenantal theodicy or about paradigmatic thinking, right? These are categories that I use to describe what I think I found in their, in their writings. So it is a kind of exercise in the description. And what we learned is that there is this, I mean, we learned that there is this connection about metahistory and history and it works also when we are talking about the Holocaust. And we learned a lot of other things, uh, more detailed things about, uh, I mean, exactly what are the details of this meta history, how it works, how it operates, how it has operated in history. And uh, I think we learned something important about this perhaps ultimate question, you know, what do we mean and what, what do we say when we say that Holocaust was unique? And what does it mean? Does it actually theologically, does it mean anything? I mean, it, it certainly means something psychologically, you know, it, it means in something historically, demographically, you know, in all kinds of ways. But does it actually shatter, you know, theological, uh, theological language? And, and the answer is kind of um, yes and no. <laughs> because on the one hand, I am saying that it was really historicism. So this kind of uh, new modern approach to history, but basically said, well, there is no place for God in history. We don't need God as a factor, as an agent. History is human affair, exclusively human affair. And I mean, nature has something to do with it as well, but it's predominantly human affair. And in order to explain historical events, we don't talk about gods. We don't talk about you know, spirits or, or whatever. At least we modern historians, we modern people. And this was, I, I'm saying, this was the moment that this metahistorical, theological interpretation of history started to crumble. So by the time that Rubenstein, Fackenheim, Eliezer Berkowitz, um, you know, Yitz Grinberg and many others came, uh, this language was not available for them anymore they simply for for them applying those categories you know obscene punishment for them it was obscene for them it was a blasphemy but it was not so much because of the holocaust itself but because this whole framework of explanation for at least a significant part of you know uh of uh, jewish population has ceased to uh, to work to operate but not for everyone i mean in in the post-war orthodox uh, responses to the holocaust we see the same framework you know still working there are still paradigms applied you know when um Cook, you know speaks spoke about the holocaust being a divine surgery and we are talking you know 1960s and um Yes, right. Yes, the, the, the Holocaust was a punishment for the sin of Zionism. So for those people, it is, you know, it is still working. And, and this is a role that I was really trying to explain. How can it be that it is working? I'm wondering, obviously, your, your book talks mostly during the war and post-war. 
I'm wondering, you know, this history doesn't stop, doesn't end. It's still going. And there are conflicts in Israel-Palestine that, you know, come into the discussion. There is a rise in Holocaust denial. Are we seeing any particular reactions in, I don't know, if we want to call them post-post Holocaust theological discussions now considering the contemporary context? Well, interestingly enough, there isn't much of this discussion. I mean, of course, there is still, you know, there is remembrance, there is, um, and also um, in, in Orthodox communities, uh, even if, uh, of course, there are Orthodox communities in Israel and, and elsewhere that actually refuse to commemorate the Holocaust on the Union uh, HaShoah or a Holocaust Day, because they are saying, no, we already have a fast and, and a special day of mourning for that. We have Tisha B'Av, which is, again, this kind of approach. It is not new. It is not unique. We don't need a special holiday or a special, you know, morning day, we already have one that covers also the Holocaust. So we don't need that. So there are discussions about that. And of course, it's been changing. It's been it's been changing. But in terms of like theological debates, really, there isn't much anymore of that. I don't think there is. And it's also, I think, a sign of perhaps the Holocaust not being as unique and as shattering as we are accustomed to thinking, because theologically, again, not historically, not morally, etc., but theologically. But perhaps what we are seeing is in fact that Judaism keeps going, right? It's it's and it, we we still say, I mean, at least many people say the same prayers. So, you know, when, when Jews gather, you know, it's, uh, of course, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming. So, you know, people will be gathering in, in synagogues and they will be saying, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. It's, you know, it's, it's in the prayer book. And of course, not every prayer book anymore. It used to be the standard. It's not, there are, there are prayer books that don't have that, that anymore, which is also significant. But I think that this kind of lack of or, or discontinuation of uh, those kind of very heated uh, discussions about the theological meaning of the Holocaust, I think that it shows that, yes, it has become normalized theologically in a way. So where does that leave us then? Did we, if we're normalizing it theologically, did we get to a point where most people accepted that God was asleep during that time, that God was not involved, that it was a punishment? Where did most people end up? This is, I'm, I'm really tempted to say something possibly um, very risky, because I am tempted to say that people don't think about all that that much anymore. Of course, in some communities they do. And, uh, you know, like in, in, in uh, Hasidic communities, um, there is a lot, Holocaust is constantly there, just like you cited this, 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 or whatever it was, research. Mm, this, right? uh, the survey from is, Monash, yeah. Yeah. But the, that remembering the Holocaust is very important for people. But I'm not sure if it became part of what Judaism is. So in a sense, the Holocaust and its enormity have has been i think successfully accommodated into the wider you know cloth of uh, of of meaning of rituals of memory of of imagination of books of of everything but i i'm not sure it is seen any longer as the theological problem for judaism the way it was 
in you know 1960s or or or, or 1970s when Rubenstein was saying like okay so we have met here at this symposium on Jewish be- Jewish belief and we are not talking about the Holocaust I mean this is the question of God you know after Auschwitz and I don't know maybe maybe it has turned out but not it's not anymore is there a new theological question there are many. <laughs> I think I think there are many, and many of them have to do with our relation uh, with with environment. Uh, we have we have different concerns, right? Jews today have different concerns, but but they had at least there are some that are new. Uh, there are always concerns, you know, anti-Semitism and, and like you said, Holocaust denial. But but there is also the climate change, uh, and you know, and, and there is a problem of what. Do we really mean by being Jewish in today's world? What does it mean in terms of our commitment to Jewish people? What does it mean about our commitment to Israel? That's obviously a huge, huge question, political, theological, and whatever else you can put. So I think, yeah, just different. There are questions about, you know, um, gender equality, about uh, the presence of transsexual people, you know, all kinds of false concerns that simply did not exist earlier. So what's next for you in terms of your research? Uh, next for me, I'm not really completely sure, but what I would really like to do is to look at the history of how the category of theology was assimilated in Jewish uh, religious discourse, you know, what, and not only Jewish religious discourse, because there, there is this old debate and it's kind of red herring, really, if there is theolo- if Judaism has a theology or not. And it used to be, this argument used to be made that Judaism is just French religion that doesn't really have theology. Of course, it has tons of, it just depends on what we mean by theology, as simple as that, right? So this is what I would like to trace, you know, how it happened, because it's not a native term. Maimonides doesn't talk about theology. So how this term became Jewish term, you know, how how it happened that, that Fackenheim could call himself, okay, I'm a Jewish theologian, but somebody who lived... I don't know, in, in, in 13th century, would like not even think about it. And what does it mean that we started to talk about Jewish theology and today we have Jewish theology? Well, I'm very much looking forward to sitting down with you when your next book is out on this question of Jewish theology. But right now, your book, History, Metahistory and Evil, Jewish Theological Responses to the Holocaust, is out there for all of our li- listeners to go and have a read. Thank you so much, Barbara, for joining us on the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals.
Thanks for listening.